Welcome to the Talks on Law MCLE podcast. Interviews with leading attorneys, professors, and judges on important and thought-provoking legal topics. And now, for the interview. Forensics labs in the United States are entrusted with a critical role in American justice. They are there to objectively analyze criminal evidence, to guide investigators, and ultimately to support criminal convictions. Unfortunately, as we'll discuss today, forensic science often does not live up to the current standards of scientific research. And when forensic science fails, injustice follows. Hello and welcome to Talks on Law. I'm Joel Cohen. Today, as we discuss forensic labs, we're joined by two experts. We have Dr. Peter Stout of the Houston Forensic Science Center and Professor Brandon Garrett of Duke Law School, a leading scholar on criminal justice outcomes. Professor Garrett, Dr. Stout, welcome to Talks on Law. Thanks. Thanks for having us. Yeah, I appreciate it. Happy to be here. Why don't we tee things up with an example of forensic science going wrong in the lab? There are, unfortunately, way too many opportunities where stuff has gone wrong in forensic science laboratories. Here in Houston, which is probably the one I can speak to most easily, we've had a number of exonerations that have come from issues within the laboratory, pretty notably are Josiah Sutton and George Rodriguez, who were part of why Houston Forensic Science Center came to exist. But even recently, Lydell Grant was, I think, another example of where not just simply the laboratory doing something incorrectly, because really fundamentally in Lytle Grant, the lab didn't get something wrong. It just at that point in time, we weren't able to produce a conclusive result. So the result from the lab was inconclusive, which then drove the rest of the system to depend on eyewitness accounts, which were fundamentally wrong. What actually took place in the Lydell Grant case. What was he charged with? The victim's name was Shearhorn. He was stabbed out front of a bar called The Blur late at night. It's dark. It's a bar called The Blur, so probably most of the eyewitnesses might not have been in the best condition. There wasn't much physical evidence at all. Lytle Grant had come back around to the bar the next day, and a witness the next day recognized him, called in a Crime Stoppers tip, and that was what started Lytle Grant being um, a suspect in it. The DNA that was analyzed at the time were scrapings under the fingernails of the victim, Shearhorn, and the DNA at the time that this was done, there wasn't enough information to call it either an inclusion or an exclusion, and this is one of the sticky places that we still struggle with of the difference between inclusion, exclusion, and I don't know. But because there really wasn't any DNA at the time, the entire testimony at the time of the trial, really scientific evidence wasn't much of the trial. It was all about the eyewitness testimony. Fast forward to just a few years ago with the addition of probabilistic genotyping, which gives laboratories a much better ability to use more of the data to be able to untangle complex make mixtures of DNA, which we're dealing with more and more as we have more sensitive technologies now. And using those technologies, additional work with that DNA evidence indicated that not only was Lydell Grant excluded as a contributor to the DNA under the fingernails, 
but there was another profile that was included. And through some twists and turns that I'm still not entirely certain how it happened, they were able to get a CODIS hit to a single individual who was also present in Houston at the time of the murder, had just been released from the county jail, a number of things lined up, and ultimately he's been arrested. And now Lytle Grant has, Texas Supreme Court actually just issued an opinion about his actual innocence. That's a, a great story for today's conversation because it tees up how lab results, bad lab results or slow lab results can be detrimental. This is something I harp on a lot here. Of it's about the right answer at the right time. Simply having the correct answer six months too late, that's as much of a problem as having the wrong answer immediately. Both of those things create untenable consequences in the system. And Professor, you've actually written a book on crime labs, The Autopsy of a Crime Lab. What are some of the key issues that are impacting the criminal justice system that are leading to wrongful convictions when it comes to forensic labs? Yeah, so I, I call it an autopsy of a crime lab because the idea is it's not an autopsy of any particular crime lab. And I don't know how you cut apart a crime lab, but the idea is to break apart the ways that forensic science can go wrong into pieces. And these pieces begin at the crime scene with how evidence is collected, which wasn't so much of an issue in the Lydell Grant case, but it's a really important issue in lots of cases. And Peter can wax poetic about the problems we run into when you have untrained officers collecting evidence at crime scenes. So it begins like with the very moment someone walks over to a place where a crime happened and potentially breathes on the scene. Like we all appreciate the importance of wearing masks after, you know, a year plus during the COVID-19 pandemic, but you know, people interacting with crime scenes, they're always supposed to wear masks, not because of COVID, but because a breath can contaminate DNA. And when you move from the crime scene then to labeling the stuff properly, giving it to someone who actually has training and skill to analyze the evidence, and then using methods that are reliable and lead to repeatable, predictable results, then conveying those results in reports so that dumb lawyers like myself with no scientific background can understand what they mean, and then presenting that evidence in court so that judges and, and jurors that will most likely like myself, be scientifically illiterate, understand what it means. At each step of the process, terrible things can go wrong. A lot of forensic methods depend on experts who have expertise based on sort of their training. And we're not sure how reliable or objective the method is, but the idea is that with lots of practice, someone can get better at identifying and comparing patterns that they're visually comparing with their eyes. Uh, and then the question is, well, how good are these people at pattern recognition and how much better do you get at it with lots of training and experience? Ideally, you test people to find out how good they are and how accurate they are. But the proficiency test that most labs use, and we can talk more about what good labs can do, they use these commercial tests, which are designed to be super easy. And they're you know, admittedly not supposed to be like a demanding test. They're supposed to be sort of a pass-fail. Can this person follow minimal procedures? But at the Metropolitan Lab in D.C., an analyst had actually failed one of these proficiency tests, and which was kind of shocking because they're designed to be easy. And what sort of came out when they looked into it was not only that, but these tests are often taken in groups. It's not even testing one person. Like someone actually looked over the work before this person submitted their firearms you know, answers. And so then they're like, oh, well, then that's actually a problem with two people. 
then they started looking at the person's cases and they found problems in a case which yet another person had looked over as a fact about the way that firearms work is done. Right? There are a lot of crimes, obviously, that have guns in this country and where something is shot and there will be cartridge casings or bullets left at the crime scene. And then, you know, assuming no one is seen running away or, you know, given the problems with eyewitness memory, like we had at the Blur nightclub, uh, what you may have left is like, it all happens very quickly, but bullets and cartridges or cartridges are left on the ground. And so how do you link those bullets or cartridges if no weapon is found, or even if a weapon is found, like how do you link that with a person? If the weapon is found, maybe there's a fingerprint or DNA on the, on the weapon, that'd be great. Uh, but assuming the person was wise enough to leave with the murder weapon, then all you have is those bullets or cartridges. If you later arrest the person and find that a gun that they own and realize, oh, wait a minute, this is like the same caliber as the gun used in a shooting, then maybe you could test fire bullets or cartridges from that weapon and see whether they kind of line up. But these firearms examiners, you know, they're standard in the field. They're not like marking things or documenting anything when they're doing that comparison. They're basically looking at the scratch marks that the bullet or cartridge has from the barrel of this tool and saying, yep, it seems like it lines up enough. This looks close. Based on my training experience, looking at a lot of bullets and cartridges, this lines up enough. And it's not like fingerprint work where there are some sense of like features, like little loop endings and things that are marked. There's no marking. It's not like there's any documentation. This is how long I spent looking at it. These are the things that I identified. These are the differences I saw, but they're not important because of these reasons. None of that is just kind of eyeballing it based on training and experience. And so when you have several people in one group making mistakes, despite their training and experience, it's like, oh, but it's not like you can go back and figure out, oh, this is where they got it wrong because there's no record of what they did. And so in a recent case, that particular firearm examiner left the lab. Oh, it failed the proficiency test. That's terrible. That person left. Whether that was right or wrong, I don't know. Uh, but there was a judge in DC that uh, said, look, look, given how little is documented in firearms work, given that there had then been a serious study done by the Ames lab at Iowa State looking at error rates in firearms, and they documented reasonably high error rates. They documented enormously high rates of people looking at the test items and saying that the evidence was inconclusive. And, and there was a big case made by Dr. Nick Skurich, who's a, a collaborator of mine. You know, Skurich says, you know, if in more than a third of the cases, they said that the evidence was inconclusive, that's actually a really high error rate because this was a test where there actually were answers to each question. The correct answer was not inconclusive. Either this bullet matched this or it matched that or it matched nothing but you can't get 100% on a test if you just refuse to answer all the questions. This was not that kind of a test. Many in the field say, oh, no, no, inconclusive, you can't be wrong or right. That's just, uh, we don't know how to decide. There isn't enough evidence to make a decision. Uh, I think Nick is right, actually, that that is a form of error and it's a really disturbing and problematic one because it happens a lot in the real world that there's evidence of low quality. And so it's really important whether you correctly identified as low quality or whether, wait a minute, no, we could connect this with a person potentially. This is evidence that we can do something with. You can't just sort of fudge it all into inconclusive and say it's neither wrong nor right. Anyway, a new case in front of the same judge involved, I think it was cartridge casings, not bullets, from two different crimes that an expert at the Metropolitan Lab had connected together. And the U.S. Attorney's Office, the prosecutors in the case actually, because of this judge having issued this prior ruling saying, I'm, I'm worried about this type of evidence, I'm not going to let the experts say anything more than that they cannot exclude this gun as having been the one. I won't say that you can connect this or say something more definitive, like a source identification. All you can say is you can't exclude it. 
So a strong limit on the testimony by firearms experts. New case in front of same judge. Expert says, I've connected these two shootings. Same gun was used in both. U.S. attorney's like, huh, just to make sure this judge, you know, doesn't have his eyebrow raised again, I'm going to bring in two well-known independent experts to look over the evidence. The two well-known independent experts look at it and like, these don't match. These don't match at all. This is an exclusion. That is taken back to the lab. And the lab's reaction was apparently bringing in these exam the examiners at the lab to their supervisors saying, change your conclusions to inconclusive because then you can't be wrong or right. And apparently there's even more embarrassing stuff where someone else in the lab has shown it. And he's like, no, it's an exclusion. I agree with the, these uh, independent people. That person was then told to change his PowerPoint. He then changed his conclusion like by sending a message on his iPhone in the supervisor's office, which all goes to like, nothing is documented. So all you have to do to change your conclusion is say, I have a new conclusion. It's not like there's like a detailed report where you have to like change the markings or something like that. Now I've eyeballed it differently in my mind. All this created an accreditation problem because this was a quality issue that was misreported to the accreditation agency. The lab now has had its accreditation suspended. All this highlights how bad quality control and a flimsy set of practices in a discipline can lead to just enormous problems. This just began with one case and one comparison. You know, how many thousands of cases are going to have to be reopened now to figure out whether there were mistakes made in that lab? And how good are the records in this lab? How easy will it be to even identify all the cases that may be affected by these practices? And that said, like, you know, what they were doing in that lab is not all that different from what lots of labs do. You know, I read transcripts all the time. I was just looking at a North Carolina case where there was a firearms expert who said, I don't have any documentation, but, you know, I've looked at the stuff and I conclude that this came from that gun. My personal error rate is zero and, you know, I'm right. And that's that's sort of standard around the country in that particular discipline. One thing that we should just touch on quickly is how powerful forensic evidence is. And part of it is that in a criminal case, the jury's looking for something to cling to. And what's more reliable than science? Who do we trust more than than the experts who are telling us, you know, this is what happened, or this is some scientific information that you need to calculate on. A disproportionate impact. I had one case years ago. So I'm a, I'm a toxicologist by training. So I've got a PhD in toxicology. I'm a board certified toxicologist. You know, all of these, you know, patents of nobility of things that I can rattle off of what's in my career. And I was testifying in this case that there was a social worker it was a child custody case, I think. I don't even quite remember what all the case parts were, but the defense attorney was just merciless to this counselor on what year, or as we say here in Texas, board ire, and got her disqualified. And I was sitting there watching all of this and was on the stand next. It's like, this isn't going to be much fun. And I got up there and started in on saying, PhD and all of this. And he stopped and he said, that's, that's fine there, doc. I know a real expert when I see one. It is a disproportionate sway of somebody that has that presence of science. And when it works, great. But that's an awful lot of responsibility without ensuring that it's doing what it's supposed to be doing. You know, I, I, I start my book out with the case of Keith Harward, who Peter met at an event that we had here at Duke before the pandemic. And he spent many decades, you know, more than three decades in prison in Virginia for a crime that he didn't commit. And he had this great description of what it was like 
when the kind of more senior of the dentist that testified about bite marks in his case testified. He said, he said it was like the Wizard of Oz, like the guy levitated, like the jurors were slobbering. <laughs> he was describing how he had worked on like these incredibly famous cases, like celebrity murder cases, member of every national board of, you know, forensic dentists, you know, his CV went on and on and on. And it wasn't just all of his credentials and his gravitas and like interesting, colorful stories about horrible murders that he had helped to solve. But he also testified in this really amped up way and said that, you know, there was only one set of teeth in the world that could have made the bites on this victim's leg. And that's the teeth of Keith Harward and blow ups and detail and all the description. And look at all these ways that the bite marks all line up. There are multiple dentists. The prosecution had this like barrage of dentists, but there was one in particular that was like really famous. And other dentists all got in line behind him. Now, it was not Keith Howard's teeth. He was later exonerated by DNA. And in fact, like the, the defense lawyer, like paid more attention to this stuff than lots of defense lawyers and pointed out really concrete differences between the bites and Keith Howard's teeth. And they're like, no, 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 you, you don't know anything about this. Like, they're just, everything lines up. There was no other evidence in the case either. Like, this was, this was it. This is why Keith Howard was originally sentenced to death and resentenced to life. Uh, it was all based on the gravitas and the power of this expert testimony. Now, we can also the, learn some things about just in general, what do people think of experts? What do people think? It's not like people have this like incredibly firm belief in science in this country. It's not because someone says they're an expert that people in this country automatically trust them, but there's a lot of mythos surrounding crime solving using science. People would like to think that science can make things easier in crime setting. But also, like, people are also inclined to want to see people brought to justice. And, you know, you see people actually really skeptical of experts in criminal cases involving white collar stuff, often involves like experts in accounting and things. And they're like, what? These accountants? I don't know. It's tax law accountants. That doesn't make any sense. It's confusing. Whereas there's something also just very visceral, very visceral about connecting someone to like a bite mark or a bullet or a fingerprint. It's sort of like we're connecting their body to something violent. When we survey people, and you know, at this point with collaborators, I've surveyed tens of thousands of jury eligible adults. It comes through loud and clear. These are not all necessarily people who are really numerate or who love science or who love experts, but they really are acculturated to have very strong priors that you know, whether it's fingerprints or DNA or, or other types of forensics, that this stuff is nearly foolproof when you ask them, what do you th what's the error rate like for fingerprint work or firearms work? They'll say like one in a hundred million. Like uh, when we ask them like, which is more unique, like DNA or a fingerprint? Both, you know, like completely unique, basically. Not a lot of differentiation. When you ask like lawyers and judges, lawyers and judges are more skeptical and will kind of have more gradations in terms of how we think of stuff. We're, you know, we're taught to be skeptical, but regular people tend to assume that the stuff is perfect. Now, the good news is that people, regular people are also, we're, we're surprised when we hear that stuff can go wrong. And so if you actually hear some things about, well, this expert was actually tested and this person says they're a complete expert, but actually when you give them sample fingerprints, this is how many they connect correctly. They're like, oh, okay. If you tell them that, by the way, mistakes can be made, uh, it's happened in cases before. Just ask Brandon Mayfield, who got his fingerprint misconnected to a terror bombing, or just look at this study where... They got it wrong, whatever it was, you know, 8% of the time. Jurors take that into account. And they're like, okay, not a perfect expert. This is useful information, but it's not 
like one in a hundred million accuracy information. And so if we tell people information about reliability, they can take it into account because people don't always assume that experts are perfect. But with forensics, the starting place for most people is that this stuff is perfect. This stuff is great. I don't need to think about it. It's going to tell me who committed the crime. And now for those who are listening for MC Lee credit, the code is 51215. Again, that's 51215. And now back to the interview. You're also pointing to the important role that the defense attorney will play in pointing out or questioning the reliability, the credibility of the witness or of the science. Well, the defense attorney can play a role. That said, you know, we've seen really mixed things. Forgetting about what defense lawyers actually do, because when you read trial transcripts, it's rare to see a defense lawyer actually do anything, uh, like ask questions even. It makes it really easy to read these transcripts because after the direct, the the forensic expert will say, you know, I conclude it's a source identification. Then the defense lawyer will say, so you you said it was a source identification? Yes. Okay. No further questions. I mean, they'll they'll do almost nothing. I've I've read, you know, cases like Keith Harward's where there are blatant unscientific statements made on the record in cases of people freed by DNA. These innocent people's cases, like what do the defense lawyers do in these innocent people's cases? Normally, they kind of rolled over and played dead. They didn't ask any meaningful questions. They didn't say, so, like, the bite mark discipline. Uh, What studies have been done about the reliability of bite mark comparison evidence? What do we know about error rates? You know, when when dentists were given some sample materials at one of your conferences in the field, how did you all do? Really, really badly. You know, none of that. That said, in studies where we've sort of pretended like the defense lawyer actually, here's this detailed cross-examination that the defense lawyer did do jurors, you know, take that into account? For the most part, cross-examination isn't what a lot of judges assume it is. They figure we should just let this stuff in, let the jurors decide. And the way that we, we allow jurors to make reasonable decisions about evidence is through the, through the crucible of the court, where the defense lawyer does an effective cross, and that could neutralize an expert that's, you know... The truth will emerge. Yes, the truth will emerge through the, the cross-examination is like the best machinery of justice ever invented... That's how our, the fundamentals of our adversarium jury system, that through aggressive questioning, jurors can assess things and, you know, figure it all out. I, actually, you know, that doesn't make that much sense. Like a real adversary system, you would have more than one expert. You'd have ideally at least a defense expert. And so they're just like you have lawyers from both sides questioning a witness. You could have someone else actually looking at the evidence. When we've done jury studies and ha- there's a defense expert, sometimes, you know, it could be an expert that doesn't even, as the defense expert, re-examine the evidence. It can be a defense expert that's just explaining some of the limitations of the method and saying, you know, the crime lab guy didn't tell you anything about the error rate studies in this field. There, there, something is known about how reliable these judgments are. And when judgment is perfect, these judgments can be of pretty high reliability if the evidence is high quality. But if it's lower quality, things can go wrong. And this is how it can go wrong. You know, something like that to explain uh, what the uncertainty is in this type of decision-making. That has a powerful impact on jurors because they're hearing something different from someone else, and that's what jurors do. They integrate different perspectives. Judges very rarely give the defense money for defense experts. Most people in criminal cases are indigent and can't hire their own experts. 
pretty remarkable things happen when you have a defendant that can hire experts. I think, you know, America watched in the Chauvin trial where, you know, in, in the trial over the murder of George Floyd, there are all these defense experts. It wasn't effective in that particular trial, but the defense put on an expensive effort to try to bring a battery of experts to counter the prosecution experts. That doesn't normally happen. That never happens in regular cases where you don't have like a police union with resources to, to hire outside experts. And so the presentation of expert evidence in forensic cases is almost always one-sided, which you know is a function of resources. Like we don't give poor people a lot of resources to defend themselves when cases go to trial. But it makes it all the more important that whoever is testifying for the prosecution not be just representing you know their their side, but testify impartially and present the pluses and minuses of the evidence. Because, you know, realistically, the defense is, in normal cases, isn't going to get their own expert. And they're not going to even get to talk to an expert to, you know, be educated and think about what questions we should ask the person from the crime lab. It's really, really important that the person from the crime lab testify in a way that's scientifically informed and reasonable, because that's probably the only voice that the jury's going to hear if a case goes to trial and if a case, most cases are plea bargain. And so really the, the expert from the lab is the only one because they'll produce a report. The prosecutors will look at it and say, oh, it's a match. And the defense lawyers will look at it and say, oh, my client better plead guilty. It's a match. And that's, you know, that's actually what happens in the vast bulk of cases. Professor, why don't we talk a little bit more about the law when it comes to forensic science? Here, it doesn't sound to me like anyone's going through and and deciding, is this good science? Is this science reliable enough to be admitted? What are the standards that you see in federal law or, or in state laws? Many states follow the federal standard, which comes from Daubert versus Merrill Dell Pharmaceuticals, a 1993 decision that fundamentally reshaped expert admissibility decisions, who gets to be an expert. Uh, the Daubert case focused on these science-relevant factors. Is there peer-reviewed literature? Can you falsify the technique? Is there research on the technique? And sort of the older inquiry into like, is it generally accepted within the relevant scientific community? What is that community? Those factors are not meant to be exclusive, but the idea is we should be looking at whether this is sound science, not just letting stuff in because people have used it in the past. The federal rules of evidence were amended in 2000 to reflect this rule, and judges were tasked with this more sort of stringent, rigorous gatekeeping inquiry. And there's evidence that in civil cases where money is in dispute, uh, there's often a battle of the experts. Experts paid a lot on both sides that judges hear two points of view. They have to adjudicate. And they, there's evidence that they do scrutinize expert testimony quite a bit in civil cases, not so much in criminal. It's very rare to see judges even dig into these factors, talk about them. Uh, in state courts, you know, many states have adopted these standards, amended their rules, often it's numbered 702, just like the federal rule and has the same words as the federal rule. Sometimes you'll see judges quote those words, but then say nothing about the reliability of the evidence in their case. Or they'll say, we've let fingerprint evidence in for years. Maybe those were years before they changed to the modern Daubert rule. doesn't matter. They just sort of say, it was good enough then, it's good enough now. It's really, really uncommon to see judges dig into reliability issues or research or science at all. In recent years, here and there, we've seen longer opinions where some judges have actually dug in and like talked about research and error rates, the National Academy of Sciences report, it's not that common. Judges are just really reluctant to exclude evidence in criminal cases, period, whether it's expert evidence 
or a really disturbing coercive interrogation or an eyewitness where there's all kinds of indicia of unreliability. In general, excluding evidence means that the prosecution may not be able to bring its case and judges just want to let it all in, let the jury decide whether to convict someone in a serious criminal case. And so you just, what we have seen more of is judges at least saying, it was wrong to let this expert in. And on appeal, they'll say, that was an error. But by the way, it was a harmless error because the guy's totally guilty based on other evidence. But we just want to send a message that they shouldn't have let this expert say these things. Or, you know, here and there, you'll you'll have judges limit the testimony and say, this expert gets in. You know, I'm not sure about reliability, but the conclusion should be more cautious. Maybe they should just testify to a reasonable firearm certainty or something. Or they can't exclude the firearm. I'm not sure about reliability, but I'm not going to go there. Here and there, you'll have judges, and we've seen more of this in recent years too, which is interesting. We're not going to say anything about the reliability of this discipline, but look at the work that this firearms or whatever it is examiner did. There's no documentation. They can't say how long they worked on it. I can't tell whether this person did reliable work in this particular case. Maybe the discipline is fine. That raises more complicated science issues. But what this person did, I can't even tell what they did. I'm not letting this expert testify because... I don't know whether the work they did is trustworthy in this case. And, and we've seen more of that, actually, which should send a warning sign to labs that don't really have standard operating procedures or documentation or, or standard or good reporting. You know, you do still see, especially you have like small labs and in, in police departments still. They're not even independent labs in any way. They're like, you know, in the basement of the police department where they have no real standard operating procedures, no real documentation. You ask you know, these examiners, like, are you familiar with the National Academy of Sciences report on forensics? Like, have you looked at standards in professional associations in your discipline? How do you report? What language do you use? They sort of say, I don't know. Like, I just, I just look at stuff. We haven't even talked about that. We've tended to talk about like how should you regulate labs and Peter's lab is a well-resourced lab. There are so many labs which are really operating in dark ages, just like there are like three-person police departments and there are 5,000-person police departments. There are like three-person crime laboratories that are just sort of like a room in a police department. For more legal explainers and interviews with the titans of law, visit TalksOnLaw.com. If you're earning MCLE for this interview, you can enter your confirmation code at TalksOnLaw.com slash podcast to get your certificate. Join us again soon for more cutting-edge interviews on the Talks on Law MCLE podcast.